So I'm doing a little new thing here. As you may notice, the last episode is I'm talking for like a second here because honestly, this is just doesn't matter to you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Is that when I record the um, episode in Audacity? Let me tell you how this works. I record the intro in Audacity because it's a audio editing program. Uh, and then I add little music things, right? So when I say, play the music, I'm talking to myself. I don't know why I say play the music. There's no, no one does this with me. Um, and then I record the episode in Zoom, like over a Zoom call, because it's just the easiest way to do it for me. I used to try to do it in Audacity, but Audacity is too audio sensitive. The Zoom being bad at audio is actually better for this, because this is, I have known this for since the beginning of the pandemic, is that... When you are in Zoom, the only thing that it really records is whoever's talking, right? You know the little green box, right? Um, that's the only thing it records. So if there's background noise on your side, it doesn't really pick it up. Now, that's bad compared to Audacity, but it just means I live in New York City. I don't even notice the background noises. I, I remember, you know, in the beginning when I used to use my phone and all that. This is years ago. Uh, you hear all this background stuff because I live above a subway and I, it's just background noise to me. But if you don't live here, it's loud. So anyway, the point is, it's a very complicated process. I take the audio from Zoom. I upload the audio to Otter, which turns it into a transcript, which by the way, there are transcripts of these episodes available. They're not perfect, but if you want one, just ask me. I will give it to you, but nope, one seems to ask, so that's fine. And then I take the audio from Otter, which has turned it into an MP3 and put it into Audacity. Um, because you can't take the audio from Zoom and put it directly into Audacity because there's some sort of plug-in issue. And I spent a lot of time fighting with it, but anyway. All this is to say that... Uh, when I start recording and I put in the music first, it makes the name of the file like the name of the music file, and then I have to change it, and frankly, it annoys me. You don't need to know all this, but if you listen to my show, you are interested in my digressions. Anyway, music time. So back to this. My name is JPB Gerald. I am the host of this show, which is Unstandardized English. On this show, we seek justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. I don't always remember to say that. It's probably not good for my branding and the people who help run this podcast, as in the network that I'm on, the Connected Network. Uh, they probably wish I stayed on topic better. I'm sorry, guys. Anyway, they know what they, they know who I am, so, you know, whatever. Um... I realize this is going to be a pretty standard episode in the sense that, like, I realize that there's a formula, which is I babble on here for a few minutes in the introduction, the music plays, and then I bring on a guest. This guest, as you might guess, is a, well, I don't know how old this person is, but early career, I should say, and by that I mean still a student. I often, I sometimes have people on here who finish their degrees, obviously, but they're usually students or early career, right? They're not, they're very rarely do I have a tenured person on here, let's put it that way. And the only ones I have on here who are tenured are people who are close friends of mine. Um, and uh, they're going to talk about their work. I gave her the instructions, just nerd out. Um, and then I just sort of respond to what they're saying. That is an episode of this show. If you are not interested in that, 
fine. And when I say nerd out, though, it's accessible. And we're going to talk about accessibility because this episode is about accessibility and communication sciences. And accessibility is a big word. There is a legal definition as far as like making, you know, reasonable accommodations. And we'll talk about that, sure. But then there's just the, the sort of implied accessibility is that like I prefer to believe that my writing style, for example, is accessible in the sense that I try to make it so that people who aren't academics can understand it. But I also still have to be rigorous enough to whatever. So I try to write this balance and it's hard. Some people don't like it and that's fine. Um, and uh, But then accessibility is, is also kind of about relatability, like making so sure that someone would care what you're saying. So I want to talk a little bit about that with her. Um, but yeah, her work is on a few things, but specifically about accessibility and communication sciences and disorders, which is just what the field is called. And we're going to talk about that the same way we talk about, and she's also um, about multilingualism in speech language pathology. And then we're going to talk about that too. Because uh, you know, I've had an episode on pathology and what's what's that even mean in my whole book? Let's talk about pathology and so forth. So her name is Mir- Miriam Elamy. And, uh, well, I'm going to let her speak for herself after the jump. Please buy my book if you haven't yet. Although, who's listening to my show? Who hasn't bought my book? I don't even know. The link is in the show description, and it'll be a good episode. Just FYI, but once again, we had some audio issues on this one. They couldn't really be edited out. They were sort of in the middle of the conversation. Just understand that that's true. Okay? All right. All right, folks. So I am here with Mariam Elamy, and uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about her work, and then we're just going to get into a conversation. You all know how it works by now, but Mariam, thank you for being here. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on, or you're in the middle of your dissertation, literally in the middle of your dissertation. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Hello, and thanks for having me. So, as you said, uh, I'm Miriam. I am a doctoral candidate in communication sciences and disorders. So, by training, I'm a speech pathologist. I practiced as an SLP in Lebanon. This is where I did my undergrad, and I worked there um, for a year before coming to the U.S., so... During my practice, I was frustrated by kind of the lack of research that we have for Arabic-speaking children. I worked with kids in the schools, so that definitely led me to be frustrated because we didn't have, like, enough tools and assessment assessment tools and intervention material for the population I was working with. So I wasn't really confident in my practice. So I felt something needs to be done about this. So I applied for the Fulbright Scholarship. And I got it in 2017. So I arrived to the U.S. Um, as a Fulbright scholar, and I stayed in Wisconsin, Madison, for two years. I did my master's there in speech pathology. And then I moved to UGA, University of Georgia, where I'm currently a doctoral candidate. Um, and my interest, because of my background, um, I also grew up in a bilingual household or a multilingual household. Um, and I was exposed to a minoritized language in the context of Lebanon. So it was Russian. And so that got me interested in how people learn languages and thinking about the psychosocial aspects of um, learning languages and so on. So in my research, I'm interested in looking at bilingual language development, particularly speakers of Arabic. I'm hoping to add to the literature for um, Arabic speakers so that we can feel more confident as clinicians when we're actually practicing um, with children who 
might have a language delay or so forth. So that's kind of the summary in a nutshell. <laughs> so there's, I mean, there's a lot there. <clears throat> I, I do briefly, because I'll get sidetracked. I, we will get sidetracked. That's just a given. But I'll get <laughs> over, overly sidetracked. But I wanted to point out something is that I find that minoritized scholars, minoritized in whatever way they are, often get into research because of frustration. You know, like mm-hmm. there's something is not, you know, like I don't know that I started my degree necessarily with frustration, but mm-hmm. I know that when I got into the research I really did, it was because something happened that frustrated me and I wanted to explore it and make it so that they fill it not just fill a gap, but like fill a void. You know? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like the gaps that people focus on are so narrow that like it's like, okay, great. Right. Um, it's like, I wanted to do this study on 11 to 13 year olds. I want to do it on 13 to 14. It's like, all right. Okay. So, um, so I, I just, I wanted to point that out to people listening. But it's like, I think that that, for the people who have on my show, people I talk to that I actually com- communicate with, they never just did it because like, well, I just feel felt like I want to continue to go to school. Like some people do. Cause some people just go to school forever. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, when it comes to sort of speech delays or communication, I hate saying disorder, but um, I find it, as you say, the literature is really, really focused on a certain population, right? Mm-hmm. And not yep. just the, the literature and not just the research, but like particularly the fact that it all is published, almost all of it published in English, right? Yep. So uh, people who don't speak English as a first language are usually excluded. You get a couple who mm-hmm. will focus on like Spanish speakers or something like that, depending on where they are. But generally speaking, a lot of the time, it's usually the majority has researchers, you know, looking at these exotic kids mm-hmm. and uh, quote unquote exotic. You understand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, classifying them as like, well, you know, let's look, let's observe them and see what's right. You know, this National Geographic shit. Uh, and I think that that's important, especially for you know the saying, nothing about us without us, right? You know, like it, it, it needs to be us. I'm obviously, I'm not the same us as you, but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. To talk about our people in the research, because although I know that academic reportage and writing is supposed to be this detached thing, which I think is itself a problem, uh, I feel like there's much more of a person in the research yeah. when it comes from this angle. Mm-hmm. That's a nice way to look at it. Yeah, I haven't considered um, that aspect. I guess when you're too much into it, too, but that's a good way to look at it from a, you know, larger scale perspective. I like that. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what I do here, because there's no way I'm going to remember every single piece of research people on my show do. <laughs> so I just try <laughs> to find, you know, ideological connections, you know, because I, I honestly think that there's way too much siloing in these fields and just in general. But like we're all in the language space. Right. I yeah. know it's not, it's not the same. I don't do mm-hmm. that. I mean, and technically I don't even do language at all with my research now. It's more about education in general, but you know what I'm saying. I was a language teacher yeah. for nine years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I remember I was trying to put together this coalition yet yeah, last year that was working on like anti-blackness and whiteness and like language. Right. And some, I invited people who there were some language teachers, there were some writing mm-hmm. teachers, there were some, speech pathologist folks, you know, a lot of different groups of people. I'm like, let's come together. And then the people were like, 
you know, that article is actually much more about teaching. I was like, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) There's an idea idea in there that you can, you know, but bringing it together is exactly what you're doing so that we can collaborate and, and work towards more research that is, you know, supportive of us and affirming and not extractive. Right, so much I, I can imagine, and I don't know what the literature is like aside from, you know, yours or, you know, mm-hmm. what you talked about. Um, I can imagine if there's anything, it's purely extractive. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, that's a problem in general, but when it, you talk about your own folks like that, you know that the language development of people from, people who speak Arabic is not some inherently disordered thing. But the way it must be seen by the people with more power, um, and not to mention the people in the West specifically, you know. So I'm gonna stop talking because I'm just, you know, asserting things that I don't actually know are true. But you, you can just respond to what I'm saying. I think it's interesting. I think growing up as a multilingual speaker here in Lebanon, that was the norm for us. It's not something that's you know different, or that was something that I was used to, and. We take um, second languages in school for different reasons, but we learn English and some other people learn French, too. So it's the norm to be bilingual or multilingual here. But as you said, there was this mismatch between what we read and the literature because everything we read was mostly on English, white, middle class speakers, because that's what, the you know, developmental psychology and psychology populations. Exactly. The the norm. The norm. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so there was this mismatch between like what I'm seeing in practice in my clinic and with the kids that I'm working with or the schools versus uh, what's out there in the research literature. Um, so as you said, like this fueled this frustration because honestly, as a clinician, you're not sure what you're doing is right. And you're not sure you're getting to results because you're basing it off of something that's not accurate or suitable for the kids you're working with. Um, so going to the US, it's so interesting to see how bilingualism is viewed in a different lens, um, how there's like different approach and that's where kind of um, the psychosocial lens came into play too. Um, so the view of bilingualism, which was considered to be a very normal or multilingualism here is normal in the context of Lebanon, but in the context of the U.S., it depends on what language you're speaking and your socioeconomic status and how you came to the U.S. and why you're exposed to these other languages. So it's so interesting to see how there's this also gap between both. Um, And I wanted to kind of add to what you said, too, that there was a paper that came out um, last year, actually, and I'm blanking on the citation. I'll send that to you, too, after because I've cited in my dissertation research, too. But basically what it said, like out of the 7000 languages that we have in the world, only around one percent of them are represented in the literature on language development in children. And out of these articles, only around 15 articles were published in the last 45 years on Arabic. And within Arabic, we have around, you know, so many dialects that are spoken across different countries. So. For Lebanese Arabic, we probably have maybe one article published in the last 40 years. So it shows there's a huge need for us to understand what's typical within our context without looking at it from a lens that's more Western, basically, in a summary. You know, when I started my doc program, and I don't know if this happened to you, but like in my first semester, one of the classes was like how to be a doc student. Like it was some Mm -hmm. basic stuff, like doing a lit review and all that, you know. And yeah. like I, I knew, so, I knew some of it. Some of it I needed to know the the basics. I, I have a point related to what you're saying. Don't worry. Uh, yeah. And they told us 
it's best depending on what you're doing, unless you're making a point like you just did to focus on recent research, right? But then mm-hmm. I said, oh, well, let me look at this question. Because at the time, what I was researching or what I was proposing to research, my first semester, I wasn't doing any research, uh, was like, I had, I used to work in a community, uh, English program, right? Like a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the attendance isn't great. It's a free class. So, and I said, well, maybe very cynically, may, maybe, and people on the podcast have heard me tell the story before. So I'm sorry, listeners, but there's a point to this. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I can fix that. Maybe I can figure out why people drop out of these classes. And, uh, you know, if I can find an intervention, you know, in all these programs, it's not going to be 100%. There's not going to be some people, but like most of these programs get like 40, 50% attendance, right? Yeah. And uh, that also affects their grant funding. Like you're supposed to keep people in the class. <laughs> so because um, I used to manage the program and I knew you had to keep a certain amount. So anyway, I said, all right, let me look this up. Why are these people leaving the class? And I could only find literally one article published in the last 10 years about this specific thing, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's logistical reasons for it, which is that kind of hard to interview people who left the class because they're, they're gone. <laughs> like right. there's, there's, there's that. But also they weren't asked, they all assumed they knew everything. They assumed that everything was a like, can't get childcare. I can't get there. That happens. But that wasn't the main reason. And I don't go too even to that. I have the whole chapter in my book. But the point is, it, as much as I get frustrated and say, you know, I want to do other kinds of scholarship, which is why I have a podcast, which is why I wrote a book, that which I, I'm hoping is more accessible than uh, an article. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, or fortunately, the literature matters. Yeah. Right? Whether or not, it's, it's like that Meryl Streep speech in Devil Wears Prada where you're just like, oh, I don't care about these things. It's like, yeah, but the fact that they're doing this and it's passed on to these people and it goes to these people and changes the policy, it does matter. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think it's really important for like, that's just we, sh- we shouldn't still be breaking this ground. You yeah. know what I'm saying? We should be able to have conversations within the literature among several articles and then we can, you know, when you get to a point where you end up being an ambassador for an entire group of people. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of pressure for the few of us when we're talking about these things. Like, I have this little corner of the scholarship world that's basically just me, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't even have an academic job, so I'm not even doing any regular research right now, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I'm just writing books, basically. But, like, it it. it and then when you have to make the connections, you're making it as people whose research doesn't quite align with yours because it's a different angle. And that's not yeah. necessarily bad to make those connections, but it means like I'm talking to you and I'm still learning from you and I find it really interesting. And hopefully you find what I say interesting. But, um, yeah. you know, it's not like 10 of us can get together and talk about it, like talk about our actual, like similar research. You can talk about our different researches. And that's part of why I do the show is I learn about people's research and so forth. So I just really think that that's an issue. And I don't, it's not unintentional <laughs> that this thing is happening. You know, the fact that they, that there's so few of us that it's much easier to get published if you just replicate something that's already there and tweak it slightly. You know, um, you want to, in, in any, when you learn about this, you're supposed to base it off prior research, but there's so little. So what are you going to do? Base it off something from 1970? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> 
I relate to this so much, especially now considering what I wanted to do for my dissertation study. Like you said, it's so hard to be. I think my struggle with this line of research is that it has to be foundational in a sense. It has to be something that's not considered, you know, sexy research or groundbreaking. But it's the base that we need to move, you know, and to build on this literature that basically doesn't exist and is very minimal. So you have to start with something that's foundational and it's very important. But, you know, thinking from an academic standpoint, you want something that gets you the grants. You want something that is interesting to fund as a research line. So I think I struggled with that. But I still went to went for what I thought was um, important and foundational, like you said. And even with this foundational line of research, I still struggled with finding articles, as you said, to cite and to support what I'm doing, which made me affirm that, okay, I am maybe trailblazing in some areas that are still not explored. And it confirmed to me that this is an important line of research, but it does put a lot of pressure on you. And I'm lucky that I'm supported by my advisor and my committee, but it's also hard to find people who actually know like what you're, and I do have a committee member who speaks Arabic and is helping me with that. Um, but as you said, it places a lot. I think people don't see um, the pressure that is placed on you and how much more work you actually need to do to get this kind of research moving and to actually produce that literature, which is very important. But I think on the surface level, it can appear as, oh, yeah, this is like minimal and easy to do. You know, it probably didn't take them a lot of time, but there's so much behind the scenes that's going on. And I think you kind of described it very nicely now. <laughs> I think that one of the things I noticed is that I... Gave up is the wrong word, but I switched gears in my research, mm-hmm. um, partially for practical reasons and partially because um, I knew anything I did was going to have an impact on me emotionally, mm-hmm. you know, and like I was interviewing white teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And they were people I knew. I mean, not like they weren't like my best friends, but I I, had, I knew who they were. So it wasn't hard. I didn't have to do much recruiting is my point. Um, okay. But I was interviewing them about their lives and so forth. And they're telling me basically all these people were raised in like progressive areas. I did not solicit that, but I feel like the people who were interested in this study are people who would do that. Right. People okay. aren't coming, coming in in their white hoods and then they want to talk to me. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, so I'm talking to them. And they're telling me about their lives and how they were raised with the like, I don't see color and all this stuff. Right. And they, they now aren't like that, but they're telling me about their childhood. And yeah. I'm think, thinking about my classmates growing up. Like I'm, I'm listening to these people and talking to them, but I'm also thinking about my classmates and what they were raised in and how it affected me where they didn't take these things into account. And like, you know, I remember I got mad one time in my doc classes where we were talking about literacy and I forget what the study was. And they mm-hmm. were just talking so clinically about the black kids in the study, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, do you not, like, these are people, you mm-hmm. know? I think that the reportage deliberately makes it so that they're not people, uh, mm-hmm. they're just participants or subjects, and then it's really easy to just talk about them in numerical form or even if it's qualitative, talk, you know, as in ex- ex- excerpt form. Mm-hmm. And I think Trying to bring humanity to our participants, I think, is something that is really, uh, and I don't mean to pre- imply that they don't have humanity, but I mean in the reportage, um, yeah. is really lacking. And it's not, we have guards against 
the most egregious of extractive research, right? And I, mm-hmm. part of me says, like, I'm glad they have that. On the other hand, if you need those laws, not sure you should be doing research. <laughs> like, if you were going to do that, I was like, I don't know if you're going to be better at it just because you don't, you don't have the ability to do that sort of thing. Uh, but, and also I think most of the rules are for them to cover their own ass, obviously, so that they don't get sued, you know, um, which I understand. But you can be extractive without being egregious. Mm-hmm. You know, you can be extractive without like, the Tuskegee experiment thing, right? Everyone thinks of that. And I'm like, yeah, but there's so much more mundane research that is really impactful. Like the word gap stuff, nobody was, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't let syphilis run wild in, the, in a person with the word gap stuff, right? right. And then we died, right. and then we died. But the policies that came from it mm-hmm. have affected millions of kids who didn't necessarily have any problems, but they were diagnosed as having a problem. And in so many places I hear that Literally, if they if they write down that their family speaks another language at home, then they put them in English class. Mm-hmm. And that's I don't know. So it's just like the way that that the the literature is focused either on the what did it say white English speaking industrial you know what I mean the acronym yeah, the weird acronym yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, I forget what are rich and democratic there you go um, yeah. And, uh, or within there, it's a, it's a, it's a top down vision of the others. Yes. It's either an unnamed look at the majority or a, a, a named look at the exotic others. And uh, you didn't just come to America, you went to Wisconsin. So <laughs> that's, that is a particular part of the United States. There's, uh, I'm sure being in a college town is a little different than the rest yeah. of Wisconsin. Madison is quite different. <laughs> but as soon as you left campus <laughs> or the city, the city or something like that, unless you went to Chicago, I guess, uh, it's a little different out there, you know? Mm-hmm. So what was that experience like? Aside from like the United States and all that, which I kind of, you know, that I'm not really, I've heard that story, but moving to, <laughs> to, to Madison and then sort of the contrast between like the Madison bubble and then, you know, going 10 feet outside of Madison. Yeah, I think one of the things that struck me coming there first was that we were just a class full of white female um females in the US and I was the only so I was the only girl from the Middle East and there was another girl who was from the Philippines. So my class was quite um kind of uniform and a lot of them were from the Midwest, so a lot of local people. Um so I would say kind of the Cultural adjustment definitely took a toll on me as a student there um, because I came from a very collectivist culture. We're used to we always greet each other when we come into the room. So the concept of just leaving the classroom suddenly abruptly was just so strange to me. And people like were so used to it. And I'm like, oh, like usually I'm used to like you have to greet everyone and then like make sure you're saying bye to everyone. So these little things, I didn't notice how much they impacted me when I first came in. But then. I had to adjust to the culture um, and definitely not having around a, a lot of international students around made it harder to just have someone who can understand the struggle. It's like, you know, being in a different environment and learning, um, even though English was my second language in Lebanon, but we still don't 
speak as fluently as people in the U.S. So there was the language barrier to for me going there, um, getting used to a different academic system, too. So it was a lot to take in. But I would say I was lucky to be surrounded by um, kind people in the U.S. Honestly, I was met with, um, yeah, kindness. Uh, I had a host family in Madison. So they signed up through Madison Friends of International Students. So it was an American family. And they were the people who picked me up from the airport and helped me settle down, too. So honestly, I was lucky to meet. I wasn't faced with any kind of, and I would say I am a white passing woman, so I think I can easily blend in within. So I probably didn't trigger maybe compared to my veiled friends who come from, you know, Lebanon who wear a very clear hijab that maybe their experience would be different. So I acknowledge that too. Um, but I remember kind of experiencing at least a little microaggressions in the classroom when we talk about, and I feel my classmates didn't mean that, but they would, their perception of the Middle East would come up through, you know, certain comments and the discussion. So it was definitely hard to kind of listen to that and just let it go for the sake of, you know, being in class and just participating. So it was multi-layered for sure. Um, but luckily I don't have, you know, any negative experience. And honestly, I didn't have to get outside of my college down. So I didn't have to kind of interact with others. <laughs> and if I did, it was in the context of the university and it was all kind of, you know, collegiate and uh, polite to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's one thing, right? If you, depending on what campus you're on, you might not ever leave. I, I'm from the Northeast, but I don't, I, I went to school in, in New Jersey and I didn't really leave campus except to come back to New York. So like, yep. I just, I wasn't like, I didn't have a driver's license when I was in college. So until my last <laughs> year. So I uh, wasn't going to do go for a walk in the woods. I guess I could, but like, I just didn't leave, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, you're right. I mean, we think about that because I forgot with grads, I forgot that that still happens sometimes in grad school. You had a host family. It was a little different. Usually I think grad school, I think people are living on their own or living in roommates or something like that. Um, because like, Part of the reason when I went back to school, I want to do things a little bit differently is like, I don't want to be in the bubble, right? Cause yeah. I had a bu- bubble in undergrad and then I wanted to be, I'm in school, but I'm out here and whatever. And it didn't end up working mm-hmm. out that way because like I didn't actually end up meeting anybody. And I was like, Oh, that was silly. And I'm talking about my master's, not my dad's program. But anyway. Yeah. All right. You know, that's, that's interesting to think about because the Midwest is a whole vibe. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I would uh, think with that, like Madison though is very liberal and open. So. I, I remember me preparing to go to Georgia and like people there were kind of concerned, like, oh, you were in Madison and now you're moving to, you know, <laughs> Georgia. So they were concerned the other way around, like, oh, you're going towards the South. And, um, and I'd say in most places, since I've been in college towns, honestly, my interactions have, there's always the mini microaggressions of like, oh, like you don't sound like you speak, you know, <laughs> you're from Lebanon or, you know, these small things, but I haven't encountered like any. Um, not to minimize those, but, you know, there wasn't any clear, you know, yeah, racism or negative interactions that happened, I would say. I think that the environment of college is really interesting because that's kind of where the people in my dissertation tended to grow up in places like that. So mm-hmm. they were, like I said, very friendly people who still had some shit to work on, yeah. <laughs> you know, like they... <laughs> They never, never meant anyone any harm. They were taught everybody was equal because they're in a college town and they know. And honestly, like, I don't want to stereotype, but like, generally speaking, you would think the people in the colleges should know better. You would think. Right. Not all of them, but you would think. 
Uh, right. Or they at least know enough to shut up if they have some dumb stuff to say. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, and it's like, I don't really care what people believe. They're not saying it to me, you know? Uh, so that is true. It's like, it's not even just that people are more enlightened. They're more enlightened only in the sense that they know, even if I go home and have some horrible thoughts, I'm not going to bring it to the, the campus because it's not good. And I mean, you know, and so forth. So that is interesting to think about. Um, I wanted to know sort of your thoughts generally about, because you were a speech language pathologist. Um, mm-hmm. and like, I find that field or subfield or whatever to be, it's pretty fraught sometimes in the literature, even before you even get into the mm-hmm. Arabic, you know, like mm-hmm. it's really hard. It's in the name. It's really hard not to be like, pathologizing people but it's not just right. this person has dyslexia or something i'm just naming a language thing right it's it's like yeah. there's something wrong with this person inherently and i find that a lot in the in the literature the point where it's hard for me to read the literature because like even when they're trying to get at something good like they want to do some intervention that helps somebody it still starts from a look what's wrong with this kid or adult but you know what i mean Right, right. Yeah, that's always an interesting lens. And I would say that's something that I learned a lot coming to the US, to be honest. I feel my training in Lebanon was very much of a medical model. As you said, we consider this person to have this disorder or this disability, and we are the persons who are fixing and treating, quote unquote, you know, this disorder so that they can fit in with the norm, also, quote unquote. Um, But I think when thing I appreciated about my education in the U.S., I was a LENS um, trainee, and the acronym stands for Leadership and Education and Neurodevelopmental um, Disorders um, training program, and it's very interdisciplinary. So through the program, we had a lot of discussions about disability and the history of that in the U.S. in the context of the U.S. because that's where I was learning. Um, so I think and we had a lot of people who came and talked about their own experiences as individuals with disability. I think it helped me go, um, start questioning technologies that we're seeing. And that's where I got familiar with a new diversity mood, thinking about different brands humans. And so, what you were saying basically. It was that your program left you, um, it was much more asset based or whatever than, uh, it had been in your original training is what you were basically saying there. Is that basically what you were trying to say? Yeah, yeah. We were introduced to your. be the expectations of one turning we can change the environment and be more inclusive in the ways we do things so I think that always as you said like applies to our field too as um, speech pathologists and as you said like the name itself um, but what I've been interested in, eventually these children are so since my focus is on children these children need environment through communication you're able to get your goals and outcomes life 
and get in reaching whatever um, most potentially favorable outcome for you as an individual. So that's, sorry. So. Yeah. Uh, so. It's interesting because I find that in the United States, because we are such a, a locus of research, that we produce so much of it and so many, mm-hmm. of, so many of the journals ourselves, you do get a wider range of approaches. Um, mm-hmm. And so like what you're saying is like, there's still a whole bunch of crap that comes out in the American, American focused uh, literature. And on the other hand, mm-hmm. you know, I got to give it in the sense that there's still a lot of people here who are doing valuable stuff, you know? So yeah. it's that it, it's not that it's all bad here. It's that it's a crapshoot and, you know, <clears throat> you'll get, and, and the same, and the, and the annoying thing is because it's so, focused on form in terms of legitimacy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, like if you write a certain way, if you produce a certain type of data or, or, or whatever, you, mm-hmm. you, you can, you getting into the journals is much more based on that than how innovative your idea is, is my point. Um, right. Like, did you, did you follow the rules as much? It's much, that's how you get into the journal much more than that was a really cool idea. Um, right. And because of that, if you have a cool idea, but you follow their format, you can get it in there. But what that means is you have this clash because like if you get the educational researcher or something, one of the big ones, right? One of the ones is prestigious. So you go, oh my God, you got into this one. You'll get a really, really innovative idea right next to some bullshit. <laughs> like, you know, in the same volume, you'll get someone who's really trying to do some stuff and someone who's just like, well, look at this learning loss. And I'm just like, come on, man. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this, and, and so it flattens it, right? I wish that we could separate the two and just like, mm-hmm. if there was some journals where you wanted to publish retreads of the same shit, go to those mm-hmm. journals. And if you want to publish something new, go to these journals. Because in the same way that like, I was in Language Magazine, right? A few yeah. times. And there, because literally because he thought I was a good writer, he's publishing my stuff that's all about what would happen after whiteness in language teaching, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're also publishing, like, here's some interventions for learning loss. And, like, it's like the same page. I'm just like, come on, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but on the other hand, because those journals have such a stranglehold on legitimacy, the supposed legitimacy, yeah. uh, you can't just say well i'll just go publish over here well no one's gonna care <laughs> right you know, you know so you have to get into the the journals that publish bad stuff in order to make your point and that like that you know the the, the that stranglehold really i think is a problem especially in in fields where pathology is kind of inherent it shouldn't be mm-hmm. but it's kind of inherent to mm-hmm. the work right because the, mm-hmm. the mob, the model, like I said, medical model and all this stuff is, 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 is really just like, it should be, how do we fix the problem? But because they, because of whatever ideologies that they're born with and raised with, 
it becomes how do you fix a person? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Yeah. And uh, I think the context here matters too, like we said, because we're thinking about, and I connected always to kind of bilingual and multilingual kids. I think that's where a lot of misconceptions come into place. And as you said, they're trying to fix then the person and um, their environment and maybe asking parents to speak to them only in English. And then they're losing all of the culture and connection that they can have with their family members too. So um yeah, it's very important to think about the lens that we're approaching this, that we could be helping some, as you said, like being able to communicate is an important skill and we want to help individuals, all individuals get to this ability to be able to express themselves at the best of their ability. And that can include um, communication devices to or sign language or whatever way they choose to express themselves. Um but that's where you're separating between, you know, helping them reach their potential versus changing them as a person or, as you said, pathologizing who they are as individuals and looking at it from a different lens. So I like how you phrased that. Yeah. And I think one of the things I was thinking about is like, so my son's daycare, the old, mm-hmm. everybody, all, all the teachers speak Spanish, right? Okay. And it's not, nice. And we weren't like, we got to go give him some Spanish. Right. We just wanted to find a daycare because, you know, um, the yeah. owner, the owner is bilingual, speaks English and Spanish. But all the other mm-hmm. teachers, all the other teachers, they don't really speak English at all. Uh, like, they, you know, they can say hi to me, but like there's, yeah. there's, not, there's no conversation happening, which means that 90 percent of what he's hearing, it's when, when they're in the school building in the world, it's an apartment. But when they're in it's Spanish, so this, this kid understands Spanish like really well. We don't speak Spanish. So, mm-hmm. so this is like a, a, an entire side of him that we don't have access to, which was like, right. it's interesting to watch because like I, t- I dropped him off this morning and the main teacher is, is ill, so she's not there, which means that it's only the Spanish speaking teachers today. And mm-hmm. it can be hard for him sometimes because like, although he understands it, it's still like extra work for a two year old to, <laughs> to, yes. to listen in a second language all day long, you know? Um, so he's been kind of out of sorts this week but like he was upset when I dropped him off I think because the main teacher isn't there and I think he is a little bit comforted when he can speak some English but then one of the teachers came up to him and said like this whole thing in Spanish and he like nodded and walked away I was like all right (laughs) but like you could you know I think and I'm making that point because in this in this country bilingualism for people born in this country I'm saying um, you know, it's like a bauble, it's like a gem, it's like a nice little thing to have, you know, mm-hmm. obviously there's parts of the country where it's just looked down on altogether. But I mean, like in, 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 in especially major metropolitan areas and people have a lot of money or the cities have a lot of money. It's like, oh, well, you know, let's, let's enhance his skills for this mostly so they can like have a leg up or something like that. Right. There's no cultural <laughs> thing to it for a lot of people. It's just a, mm-hmm. an extracurricular, right? Like a sports team. And, uh, and then for people who come in speaking another language originally and add English to it, like there's something wrong with them. Right. Um, and I remember this made me really uncomfortable when I went and it's it's like the American belief in this is so globalized because of, of media that, um, like when I moved to South Korea, when I started my career, 
you know, I didn't know any Korean. I was, I learned a little bit. And then I tried to speak Korean and every Korean told me my Korean was so good. It was not. <laughs> it was, I, I knew like a word. <laughs> so, you know, but like being praised for that when these people could speak so much more English than I could speak Korean. You know, because they've been studying it for who knows how long. And thinking that, like, when a student, you know, first language English in the United States picks up a little bit of Spanish, it's, oh, my God, what, <laughs> an, amaz- what an amazing child, right? Uh, but then when, you know, when a, if someone who's, whose first language is Spanish picks up some English, it's like, well, it's not good enough, though. <laughs> right. Um, and I remember thinking about when I came back from Korea to New York, um, I, I was just looking for a job and I interviewed at some awful tutoring place and I didn't get the job. And the guy was asking me about languages and I was telling him, you know, I speak French, although out of practice. And he was mm-hmm. like, ah, so what, what do you think? I don't know. This is a weird place. He's like, what do you think will be the languages that will be the most, uh, beneficial to learn in the next decade? And he's like quizzing me. Um, but I'm like, I don't know, Mandarin, Arabic. I don't know, man. Uh, but like, is that really why you learn a language for money? <laughs> <laughs> beneficial. Yeah. You know, and, and as like, I don't think I studied French for long enough that if you spend that much time, you're going to learn it. But I mean, like, uh, I just feel like it's a much more compelling angle for language acquisition, language learning, whatever, if there really is a, a cultural connection or a reason, right? Uh, mm-hmm. not just, not just like here's, here's a, a, a feather in my cap or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's valid to do either. But as you said, like if someone feels like learning a certain language and as you said, they're considering that to be an extracurricular or then good for them. But what is important is that if someone needs this language to be able to connect to their family members, especially, you know, there are a lot of immigrants who come, you know, to certain countries. I know um, when I end up living in the U.S., I'd want my children to learn Arabic, too, because that's a huge part of who I am and my culture. And that's how they can connect to their grandparents, too. So there's so much that comes with learning a language to in this context, as you said, when it's a connection to a person's family and culture and the food and the jokes that you can make and the music you can listen to. So it can have a lot of um, implications, too, that are just beyond just using it as a skill to get money or get a job done. It's part of who you are, your identity, and connecting to a bigger community that you are part of. So that's why it saddens me when some people... <sighs> kind of keep pursuing this myth of bilingualism is bad and we should especially with children who are struggling to learn languages that we should have them only learn English because that's the language that they'll be using in school and that's such a loss that they'll experience in their identity and connection to their family um so that's where I kind of set the foot down like feel free to learn all the languages you like for whatever reason you want but don't perpetuate myths that will have larger impact than just the language skill that the child is having. I mean, I would argue that like all the hand hand wringing and pants pooping about learning loss in the last two years is Mm -hmm. aside from it being clearly marketed by the testing companies, but Mm -hmm. it's also 
It is probably true that people are not doing as well on tests in the last two years. I mean, the tests exist. But I would argue it's not just, I mean, it's, there's a simple straightforward in the sense that, like, they haven't been as able to condition them for the test, right? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, right. Test, test taking is its own skill. And so I don't know mm-hmm. that, that the people have, they, they didn't, like, lose information from their heads. They mm-hmm. just haven't spent as much time doing test prep skills. So, yeah, yes. I think the only loss they have is that they don't know, they don't remember as well how to sit down and take these tests, um, which, to be clear, test taking is a skill. How valuable it is, I don't know. But there are aspects of it that are valuable, like pattern recognition and that sort of thing. Like, I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I was always good at tests because I'm good at pattern recognition, right? That is not yeah. a useless skill. I wish that they broke it down into those skills so that people can understand what's being tested as opposed to just, like, memorizing stuff, which is all, which is also a skill. But, like, it, it's, it's not framed that way. But my point is that... uh so much has happened in the last two and a half, three years, right? Like, mm-hmm. there is no way that a child in the last two and a half years hasn't learned anything. So much has happened. Yes. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> you think they just went into a corner and just stared at the wall since 2020? Like, <laughs> you know, wh- why not in all of these ways? And, and, and I, I, mean, I mean this to bring up language because, like, I think one of the things that's happening without being said is that People, it's not so much now, but at the beginning in the first year or whatever, right? People spent more time at home and they mm-hmm. are seen as though their home environments are detrimental to learning and they are seen mm-hmm. that way inherently. So mm-hmm. there was almost no way that they weren't going to find a way to say, see, letting these kids be home was bad for them. Uh, or for as long as they did or whatever it is, because they think that, you know, maybe these people, cause like, I know, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I was a student, I was a doctoral student though, I wasn't like an elementary school student, but like, mm-hmm. I know that like there were things that I was doing in the workplace and in school that I refused to do after I started going back into places, right? Yep. You know, there were cultural things that I just, this is the like quote. This is quote unquote the work culture. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder if there were a bunch of kids who were like, I'm not going to do what school wants me to do anymore. Uh, yeah. It, it didn't help me, you know, avoid whatever happened in the last year and a half. Um, I don't know if it, I'm sure it wasn't all that conscious. I, because I'm an adult, made these conscious decisions of like, I really don't care. Um, right. And I wonder if that happened to a lot of people. And I have no way of proving that because how would I even ask about things that they didn't understand consciously? But I wonder if that's part of the issue that, you know, uh, people's environments that are outside of the norm are pathologized inherently. And so mm-hmm. therefore them becoming closer to, as you said, to their cultures, right? Mm-hmm. I, I assume a lot of people probably got closer to their home culture because they were home. Um, right. And they don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they have to fit within the mold and the expectation. Like, if you're not code switching now and, like, getting back to how we do things here, then, yeah, this is wrong, quote-unquote. Yeah, I could see that totally. Someone should look into that, maybe with the older kids, see if they were, you know inviting us to do things differently now that we had the chance to. 
Yeah, I wonder. I think that's an interesting angle. I don't know. I have enough people in my little, you know, virtual Rolodex where there's probably somebody who would find it interesting, but they probably already have a million projects going on. I don't know. I just think that, like, I mean, I can focus in on language. And I know a lot of language people, but, like, I do wonder mm -hmm. about that, right? Because right. if you look at the SLP literature, I'm sure it's all coming out like, these kids have so many disorders now. And I'm like, is, is that really what's happening? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Why don't right. you know why nobody questions these people when they're putting these studies together? Um, you know, I knew that there would be all these people, and I, and on the other hand, I get it because even for white people, academia is not like a lucrative career. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you, you gotta do what you gotta do to get the job, and that's part of the problem. The, the incentive is to get stuff published no matter what it is. Um, right. And you know, that they're going to publish some learning loss shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're like, let me just do this. And then they'll, and, but they, what, what they tend to say, the white people who I interviewed, they tend to say like, well, once I get tenure, I'm like, all right, see, you're not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, stop, stop lying. Uh, but for us, <laughs> and I want to come to a conclusion here, but for us, mm -hmm. we, we, we can't just wait six, seven, eight, nine years to do something important, right? The entry point is that we have to do something important. Uh, however, that is defined, and we define it all differently. And with the entry point is that it means that we do things that are more challenging, challenging, like you said, for funding, challenging because readers may not like it. You'll get people who are going to review things negatively or reject it based on their ideologies that they're not examining, but they'll say, oh, I don't like the format of this article or some nonsense like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, people who don't like my work they can't come up with a reason that they don't like it. They're just like, I don't like the way he writes. And I'm just like, okay, fine. But what do, what do you think about what I said? <laughs> right. like, it's just weird. But like that happens all the time. And I have people who are from other countries who will say that like, they'll just, the, the reviewers will just say like, they don't like the grammar. They don't like this. And then they won't write, write about the actual things. And this happens a lot. And so I think that to go all the way back to the beginning about the frustration. Um, I think that's what sets us apart. Not inherently, because there are people who swallow the frustration and just put their head down and get places, and I can't really do that. But I, uh, I wonder if that inherently makes our work different because we can't pretend we're not coming from that place. Mm hmm Oh, I guess that's kind of a question. Um, <laughs> Can you phrase the question again, then? Yeah, I realized I just sort of said a thing. I was like, do you agree or uh, what do you think about, you know, I guess the extra charge that goes into the work that we do in these fields that are sort of inherently pathologizing when we understand from our own experience and from what we've read and from what we've done that mm -hmm. uh, there isn't supposed to be space for us. Yeah, it definitely adds a, a layer, as you said. It's It just makes the work more challenging. And I think the driver, especially for people who are not coming from a top-down approach, so I'm doing this because I know it's important, because I know how it will benefit the whole country and basically all of the children that are here. So I feel our ideology coming and so this is so different from as you said reviewers will probably review this work and then so it definitely adds a whole layer that I feel people don't consider 
And I feel that'll be something I'm glad that we're talking about this explicitly. I feel if more people know about this, then they would consider that layer when thinking about the research that minoritized scholars are producing and know how important it is because you're creating the foundation, you're creating the literature base that's going to be used to build. Um, this is how it all started. You just have the advantage that your area of research has been done for years now. And so you can easily cite other people's work and just keep moving. But I'm sure whoever started that type of literature also had to do whatever we're doing now and do the work and try to work with the best of their ability with what they have and then keep going to add this literature. So I think we just had the disadvantage just time-wise. And I feel even for Lebanon, it's a newer field here. Uh, we don't have as much funding. So it's still growing compared to in the U.S. where it's been there for years now. So it makes sense that there's this lag of what we're looking at maybe in this area of literature versus what's already been done in that area of literature. So I think it's important if people can acknowledge that when they consider, you know, hiring early career researchers and grant, like giving them money to do this type of work. If that layer can be considered, I think that will give more value and understanding to what this scholar had to do to get this work done, basically. So I'm happy you're addressing that and shedding light on that important thing that people probably don't see because it's unless you ask the scholar, you won't know what's going on right in their world. So I think it's very important that you're shedding the light and highlighting that for everyone to hear, hopefully. I mean, I honestly think because I don't have an academic job and I'm not really trying to get one, that that is a lot of the value I can bring um, mm -hmm. from my vantage point. You know what I'm saying? Like, I still write, but like I'm yeah. not in an IRB situation at the moment. And I'm okay with that. I don't really like doing that. So, yep. <laughs> uh, so, and I, you know, I like consult on IRB projects, so that, that's fine, you know. Um, okay. but anyway, yeah, I think that that's, we, we know. Um, and honestly, I think some of them know, which is why they often can't really say much about the substance of our research and they want to dismiss it for other reasons. Um, because mm -hmm. like, we know we have to be twice, three times as good. So we construct that shit well. Like yep. we, we don't want to let, we, you know, if there's a single hole in there, if we make a single claim that's out of bounds, they're going to tear us apart. Mm -hmm. You know, based on that one mistake, despite the fact that there are plenty of nonsense mistakes in their material, um, mm -hmm. and the assumptions that are made. And then there's a whole bunch of like stuff based on like old racist ideas. And I just think a lot of it is like, it reminds me when I was in undergrad and like the juniors would like act like they knew everything and the over mm -hmm. the freshmen. And I'm just like, you are 19 <laughs> and, and I'm 17. You don't really know anything. Right. And things that way in the literature world, because like the people who are like, oh, I'm dismissive of this. I can't believe in all of this. I'm like, your literature is only like six years old. Right. That's not a long time. Okay. Right. So, you know, maybe shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not representative. It's coming right. from one view. So maybe you should consider other points of view before you consider this to be, you know, the truth. <laughs> and I think part of it, like on, 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 the, on the one hand, the fact that it's not that old is like silly that they look, look down on us. 
On the other hand, I think what makes it hard is that some of the people who originated the research is still alive. They're just old. So mm-hmm. it's harder to move away from it when you still have the old language people sitting around. Like, they're still here because mm-hmm. it's not that long ago, right? People who did stuff in the early 80s are probably, like, in their 70s or 80s, right? But they're mm-hmm. not – they're alive. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, they still show up to, to shoot us down, right? There's this guy who – has followed me around the internet because he doesn't like my work and he just keeps following me around. Uh, mm. He recently apologized for doing it and he said he's not going to do it anymore. I don't know why he had a change of heart. But uh, <laughs> it's just like, what do you care so much? Just retire and go, just go away. And I've said this many, many times, sometimes the most effective thing you can do in terms of anti-racism, anti-oppression is to retire and shut up. <laughs> yes. So... Mariam, thank you for joining me on this episode. Uh, I know there were, you know, some choppy audio things, but I think considering that the first season of the show was me recording on my phone, I honestly think that people will be okay. Um, <laughs> I have no idea why I did that. Uh, it was not a good idea. And then, like, it, it, I would, but like, I was, I was bored at work and I had a lot of, yeah, I had a lot of extra time. So anyway, thank you for, for coming on here. I think it'll be a really valuable episode. I, I try to bring on people from different perspectives each time. Um, and uh, I hope we can continue to sort of talk about these things in the future. Me too. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a great chat. All right.